Welcome to More Than Tracy Turnblad, the podcast about fat representation in the arts. My name is Abby Rose Morris, and today I'm going to talk with Kristen Avila, who is a diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant, as well as a performer, teaching artist, and choreographer. So we're going to talk about so many very interesting things. And before we do that, I just want to talk about how this week... I asked TikTok to tell me what their very worst fat representations they've ever seen were, and I got an overwhelming amount of answers, but there were a few that kept recurring. So I decided to talk today about the one that I have seen the most times, and unfortunately that is Cats 2019. So I saw Cats in theaters four times. Because I have a death wish. Just kidding. It was because it was fun to go and get really intoxicated and go with my friends and make fun of it. Um, Four times was too many. But something that struck me when I saw it, every single one of the times struck me harder, (laughs) was how incredibly disgusting and demeaning the representations of Rebel Wilson and James Corden were as Jenny Any Dots and Bustafer Jones, respectively. So today I decided to investigate further and I watched the original Cats musical numbers to see how they were different. So over the course of Rebel Wilson's one song, she scratches her crotch, takes a running leap like into a fireplace, hits the wall and falls down. She bonks herself on the head with the toy she's playing with. It's it's just very on the nose, no pun intended. Uh, she falls off the windowsill that she's been lying on. She eats a human beetle, actually two, like she eats a person. It's, it's very weird to watch. And then she also um, sings into a fake microphone that looks a lot like a distinctly human appendage that is also light pink uh, and very, very long. (laughs) And it's just like weirdly sexual, especially also when she scratches her crotch for no reason. And then I watched the Cats musical. Which, even though I'm a musical theater person with a musical theater degree, I actually have never seen. So I checked out that number and oh my god, like, it's so different. Like, yeah, the cat is kind of fat and then she like sort of takes off her like hoop skirt that like makes her kind of fat. But like, the joke is not her size. The The whole crux of the number in the show is that she's like this old lazy cat, uh, And then at night, she becomes this, like, tap dancing kind of choreographer, drill team captain cat. Um, And the the gag is like, okay, you know, when cats are, like, old and lazy and they sleep in bed all day, like, my my beautiful cat Charlotte, who's upstairs right now. And then, of course, in the night, they wreak havoc and they run and jump around the house and they make big noises. Yeah. So, like, haha, funny joke about cats, right? Yeah. But in the movie... It's just like, oh, fat person fall. (laughs) And it's like, it's like one or two instances of that. I would be like, all right, you know, like, but it's so like hitting you over the head with it. Literally, because again, she hits herself in the head with her toy. 
Oh, and that's not even the worst part. Because then there's James Corden, who is famously the worst part of almost everything he's in. Um, I actually recently roasted James Corden on a podcast about Into the Woods. If you are interested, check out Dep Impact. That's D-E-P-P as in Johnny. Anyway, James Corden is playing Bustopher Jones. Yes, the name sounds fat phobic already. <laughs> anyway, over the course of his song, Bustopher Jones, in the original cast, which I also watched, is fat, canonically fat. But again, it's not like a very slapstick fat joke. It's more like he's this like upper crusty cat who spends all day like in, in the club, like at like a kind of a more of a country club, sort of gentleman's club kind of club. And he's like going to all these different clubs, eating all these different things. And he's just eating and eating and eating all day because he's so rich. And so he gets fat and he's like proud of being fat. And like, I mean, there's a fat suit, but like as far as fat representation goes, like it's not particularly demeaning. <laughs> but maybe I'm only saying that because of what I have to compare it to, which is James Corden in the movie Cats in a humongous fat suit falling into trash cans. He falls into not one, not two, but three trash cans, one of which he pulls over so the trash all falls on him and then he like he's like languishing in the trash and eating a chicken leg in a really disgusting way. Uh, he goes on a cat seesaw with another cat who's, like, much skinnier. And then he's like, how dare you? You know I'm sensitive about my size. That's not my, my real British accent, I swear. I can do better. Hire me. I'm a voiceover artist. Anyway, the entire crux of Bustopher Jones, as the YouTube comments actually will tell you, come through YouTube commenters for once. And also, like, the, the, the lyrics of the song and the original intent of the poem tell you. It's like... He's not ashamed. He's, like, literally proud. He's like, yeah, I'm fucking fat because I eat all the time and, like, what of it? Uh, But that would be too radical for Cats 2019, so. Anyway, they have James Corden just falling into a bunch of trash. He sleds upside down on trash can lid, too. And the very worst moment of probably the entire movie of Cats is when James Corden guzzles champagne, like, he's lying on his back. You're seeing it from above. They're pouring champagne down onto him. He's basically being waterboarded by champagne, but of course he loves it and he's like flicking his tongue up and down in a way that is very reminiscent of a certain sexual act. And it's it's just very, 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 very uncomfortable. This movie is uncomfortably sexual in so many ways. And like the way that it sexualizes the fat characters for gross out factor is... I mean, the falling down is one thing. The egregious fat suits are another thing. The the loving food so much you jump into trash cans is another thing. And you could even do some of that without making me angry. But, like, the unnecessary sexualization of fat characters for the purpose of disgusting the people watching them... I mean, that that's that's really what gets me, because like when you sexualize a fat body so that the audience can laugh, like the joke is, LOL, absurd that a fat person could ever have sex. LOL, we're laughing because it could never happen. Um, I mean, spoiler alert, it happens like. But when you see that, of course, as a fat person, not only are you thinking, haha, this is funny because I, a fat person, will never have sex. Uh which 
there's like no shame in never having sex, by the way. Like, that's fine. And I hate how like much of a premium we place on sex as a society. And that's also a whole other discussion. But anyway, you're also sitting there thinking like, okay, my sexuality is a joke. It's an object of disgust. And so I must, I must never have sex in that way. Or at least I must never show it publicly. I must never dress sexy. I must never flirt openly. Like, I famously did not tell anyone the name of a person I had a crush on until I was, what, 21? Um, and I was proud that I managed to avoid the humiliation for so long. So, like, that's kind of messed up. And it's, like, so weird how so much of this fat representation, the really negative stuff, it, like, all comes back to two things. Fat people eat a lot, so they get fat. So it's their fault. So it's okay to laugh at them. And two, fat people are unattractive and unlovable and unworthy. Like it's, it all seems to come back to those two tropes. We are going to dive a lot deeper into that in future episodes. But for now, if you're listening to this, just go punch a wall and think about Cats 2019. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to calm down now and let you hear this wonderful interview with Kristen Avila. Hi, Kristen. Hi, Abby. How are you? I'm so good. How are you? I'm doing pretty good, all things considered. So let's start at the very beginning. Uh, Tell me how you got into the arts and how you got to where you are today. So I was a super outgoing kid and I've been performing since I was basically two years old when I sang A Whole New World at a farmer's market karaoke stage. (laughs) And it all just kept going from there. Um, I went to a performing arts high school, so that steered me into the industry professionally. I have a BA in theater from USC, and I have been working as a performer since I graduated in 2012. Wow. Yes, you've been performing forever. Um, How long has your size, you feel like, been showing up for you as a performer? So I sort of always remember myself as being a bigger kid and when I look at photos now like I was way smaller than I think I was in my own head and I think that's probably pretty universal right yes um can relate I mean also because like I was a child and (laughs) high high school body is very different than 30 year old body you know um so I while I was still doing performing sort of casually in like middle school and high school and community theater and whatnot Um, That was like the only time that I ever got to play like ingenue or romantic roles. And as soon as I got into college, I was every mom, every best friend, you know, funny sidekick, best friend. Uh Um, I'm an alto and a belter. So lots of those roles that are also traditionally larger people. Um, And that was kind of it. Like I was just the mom all the time from the point that I was 19 years old to now it's still uh, a trope that I see happening a lot whenever I get called in for stuff yeah how do you feel about being the mom I mean some of them are really excellent roles that I don't need to play for another 15 years (laughs) right (laughs) like I'm not you know upset that I got to do any of them and especially you know college is always weird because everybody is is peers you know age-wise and casting adults versus kids out of that sort of field is a little bit trickier mm-hmm. um but it it is so very clearly always 
the bigger girls that yeah. get cast as older. And, and it's, you know, in every single production all across camp, we do something like 120 productions on campus, both like university sponsored and student done. And like every single one of those, the exact same trend. Yeah. Dang, it's crazy how like it becomes so universal because it's all we ever see. Yeah. And I think you get really stuck in like when people imagine what somebody looks like, they fall back on what they already know. Right. Because totally. that's what that person is in your head. For so sure. Really easy to continue to fall into the perpetuation of that cycle of mm-hmm. assuming that this is how this type of type of person reads when it doesn't yeah. have to, it doesn't have to be true. Right. But now we've all have it so deeply ingrained in our minds. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So when you graduated and you started working in the professional world, was it like a jarring experience for you to come out of school and not be able to play the mom anymore? Did you have trouble finding where you were fitting? Um, so I still kept getting cast as moms <laughs> when, oh. <laughs> uh, when I was doing mostly community theater. Because, again, it's kind of a, a weird pool, right? When you have people right. from all over all different age groups and at different skill levels. And it's it's a level that people come to to sort mm-hmm. of play around in theater. But it's also a really great space to grow as an emerging professional. Yeah. Um, and I spent a year in L.A. after I graduated and was working pretty consistently um, not really for anything that paid me any money, but I was, I was doing the work. <laughs> um, and yeah, I did a lot of like comedic roles during that time. Yeah. Um, less the parental type and a lot more like the fat, funny girl. Right. Which is another recurring for type sure. we see a for lot. Sure. And then I moved back home to the San Francisco area. Um, and that was when the mom pattern kind of picked up again. And I was either in the chorus as a dancer which was great Mm -hmm. because that's not typically something that somebody of my size would be viewed as until I get into the dance call and can execute it you know right um or I was playing at 23 the mom to a 19 year old actress and my husband was a 57 year old man like (laughs) oh boy that's rough yeah so then you moved to New York and I'm really curious to hear about what shifted there Yeah, I spent two years in New York, Uh, would have been a lot longer if not for the pandemic. So cool. (laughs) Um, But I, I have been a choreographer and a dance teacher and a dancer for since 2012 ish is when I kind of started doing it really seriously. Mm -hmm. Um, And like I said, when I was working in the Bay Area, I had a lot of dance captain, chorus, dance heavy roles. And then when I got to New York, I was like immediately typed out of consideration for anything like that. Yeah. So I would show up to calls and I would not ever get asked to stay for any dance call, despite it being a third of my resume, choreography and dance captain credits included. And if it was an open dance call, which I also would show up to pretty frequently, uh, it was, you know, first round and that was it every single time. So it's like I was not viewed as seriously in that part of my craft because I did not match up with everybody else in the room. And, you know, there's a lot to be said, obviously the caliber of talent in New York is like off the charts higher than most other markets. So that was the part that I was prepared for, for the competition. And I trained really hard. I was going to class every week and was like in the best shape sort of health wise ever, because I was walking a million miles a day to get anywhere. (laughs) 
So, but yeah, I mean, and it still, it like didn't matter. Like I was as strong and I had as much endurance as I'd ever had in my life. Yeah. And it was, it did not show up to them, I guess, <laughs> you know, and to me it felt like, well, if they would just give me a second to like show them that I'm capable of doing this, then maybe I could change their minds. But I was never given that second. Do you have any kind of hypothesis on why it was so different in the Bay Area? I think because the number of equity houses in the Bay is significantly right. lower. It's a pretty small professional market. Um, but we do have a lot of sort of in-between level theaters. So uh -huh. like community, all the way up to sort of regional, like pre-professional, you know, have places that have like two or three equity contracts, but are not necessarily entire, entirely an equity house. Um, and so I think because of the range and the quantity of work being done there, there was room for that because there was enough spots that they could afford to experiment with how they cast people or like I could just, you know, in the numbers game audition for enough things that something was going to stick. And that's not to say that there is not extreme fat phobia in Bay Area theaters because there very much is. I'm sure. Um, yeah, there are a couple of houses, you know, more than others, but I think it's just because there was a lot more room and there was a lot less stakes in the productions being done in that market versus New York where, the, where like everything goes through. Makes sense. Do you have any kind of uh, like anything that you think like a thin person might be shocked to hear about how you've been treated or your experience? Um, I had someone, I, I don't even remember like specifically who said this because it's one of those things that I tried to eject from my brain afterwards. But someone, someone asked me if I made up my choreography credits. Straight up. That is horrifying. Yeah. They, they said, are these real? And I went, what? <laughs> like, are what real? Was it another actor or like someone in the room? It was a monitor, an audition monitor. That's so disgusting. Who I'm sure like was, you know, had a performer at the theater and was helping out with auditions or whatever, because that is pretty common. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they were they were looking at it and they were like, did you really do these? And I was like, yes. <laughs> that is incredible, like in a bad way. Um, I'm really glad you said that because like, I think people do need to know what like fat folks face in the industry and like the kind of things that go down on a regular basis. Yeah. And it was, you know, it was a little bit of an older lady and I know mm -hmm. that usually results in less filter too yeah, <laughs> in the sure. massive situation. So I think it was sort of a combination of things, but I was completely floored that somebody, and especially somebody who had like no business even looking at making judgments at my resume would have said that to me. And I'd rather she say it to my face than behind my back, I guess. But like, it was not a fun thing to hear going into an audition room on top of it, like the timing of it. And I am lucky that I am pretty good at kind of shoving that stuff out of the way and really focusing on what it is I'm there to do because I know what I'm good at. And I, yeah. when I'm prepared, I'm like confident in my preparation. And so I, it didn't throw me like in the room itself, but it was something like obviously that stayed in my brain and the specifics of it have washed away. But just like the fact that that question was asked was mind blowing. Yeah. And that someone didn't know that that was an inappropriate question to ask. And that there was such disbelief that like, right. Somebody my size would have done so much dance work. Cause, and especially with dance, there's this perception of like the dancer body. Oh, yeah. And like, yes, it is the, 
trend and like the majority of what we see, but it's by no means a universal rule. Yeah. I mean, I was always the fattest person in every dance class and it took me like longer than I wish that it had to like get up the courage to go to dance class. Um, and then when I went to college, my I went to University of the Arts for anyone who doesn't know who is listening to this. And they have a really huge and very prestigious dance department. And I met a few dancers who were plus size and I was blown away. I like did not know that was a thing. Like we're just not shown or told that that is a thing. Yeah. And I, I love that I, most of my choreographing is usually for uh, schools and like youth theater. Yeah. Um, Cause that's just what I like working in. And I love that I get to be that, moment of realization for a lot of kids especially because I did a lot of a lot of work with middle schoolers I'm like that's the toughest age to be <laughs> so the fact that I get to go in and be that creative professional for them is really gratifying and one of the reasons why I enjoy working with kids and children so much yeah that's so lovely that's part of what motivates me as an actor because I'm like Someone could see my body on stage and be like, oh, my God, I'm okay." Yeah, exactly. And I I mean, I had uh, I'm sure we'll get into this more a little bit later, but I'm like small fat, like I'm a 2XL sort of in sizes. So I I'm not really at either extreme. And that is so hard to find. Yeah. In in media, in entertainment is that sort of middle ground. And like, I know that comes with a lot of privilege as well as struggle. For and, like, sure. I'm and I'm definitely in that. the same boat. Yeah. Yeah. But I saw the Hamilton tour when it first launched because San Francisco was the first stop on the initial tour. And the actress that played Peggy was my size and shape. Wow. And I was like floored. Like I had never seen somebody who was like big, but not on either, you know, either extreme end of the spectrum, really. And she had my sort of curvy shape and she was just like totally fierce and like owned every second she was on that stage. And I was just like, as as an adult, like in my late 20s, was like, oh my God. Like, <laughs> For sure. That still happens to me. Like I see, you know, movies or TV or whatever. And I'm like, holy shit, that person's doing it. Like that person looks like me and they're doing it. Yeah. Like I get so proud of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So let's talk about your DEI work. For those of you listening who may not know, that's just the abbreviation for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, So how did you get into DEI work and how did you become a DEI officer? What was the process like? So I got my professional certification in leading diversity, equity, and inclusion from Northwestern University just last year. Uh, It was a pandemic activity. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And my interest had already sort of started veering in that direction just because I'm so passionate about equitable casting. Yeah. And that comes from the fact that I am plus size, that I am a brown, I am half Mexican. Mm -hmm. And so I've always been really focused on making sure everybody that looks different or how we don't expect them to look gets a chance to be seen and gets a chance to do the roles that they want to do. And like that, you know, that's that sort of thing. And again, especially working with kids is something I'm like really conscious of. For sure. So that sort of steered me in the direction of DEI work. And then I realized that I wanted some formal training and I wanted uh, like the piece of paper that says I know what I'm doing. (laughs) 
to be able to take to places and to people who might need that kind of work. And I wanted to focus specifically on the arts. Yeah. Because I, there are plenty of companies that offer, you know, implicit bias training and diversity training and all of, all of that good stuff to businesses and corporations. And I think that's kind of where we're seeing this conversation happen a lot right now, especially currently. Um, and I really wanted to focus on the arts in particular, because that is the world I know and that's the world I care about. Um, and it is something that is so often brushed aside because a lot of theaters and theater companies don't treat themselves like businesses. And even if they're nonprofits and they're all volunteers, they they sort of still there are they are still workplaces. Yes. You know, whichever level they're operating at. So a lot of this kind of stuff is allowed to slide in ways that might not fly in like the Google office. Yeah. So I wanted to bring that knowledge and that training into this world and introduce more people to the tools and what to look out for, you know, the warning signs and all of that kind of thing. Right. Um, and then I have two colleagues that I work with who we, we do a uh, sort of historical performance and play together. Um, and it's a problem in that space too, is anytime you're doing anything history related, inevitably historical values will creep their way in. Right. And that's, the opposite of the goal that we all have who are there to enjoy ourselves. Yeah. So Historical us, values. That's an interesting way to put it. Yeah. Um, the phrase that we hear a lot is vintage style, not vintage values. Yeah. Which is really what we try to push in those spaces. But so the three of us have started working together to really focus on the like fun and hobby spaces with this kind of training and this kind of thinking, because it's a space that is not really regulated and is not really formalized because it is for fun. Right. But that's also where it starts for a lot of people. And that's like where you first internalize these things. And these are spaces where you go to be comfortable and to enjoy yourself. And so you don't want that toxic atmosphere to be part of that. And it's really hard to speak up and advocate for yourself when it is something that is volunteer or it is something that is informal because you sort of don't feel like there's a reason for them to listen to you, right. you know? Right. Because so. it's like, oh, I'm not giving you anything. You know what I mean? Yeah. Exactly. It's like, you're not getting anything from me. I'm getting like fun out of being here. But right. what power does my voice have in that situation? And it's it's really important. You know, we talk about inclusivity all the time. And that extends to all of the spaces that we occupy together. For sure. So what are some of the things that tend to slip under the rug in these more fun hobby spaces? Um, there's a lot of things that get a pass under the guise of humor and of jokes. Yeah. Um, and that is, I think, a pretty universal <laughs> assessment. Um, and we have to, you know, be really conscious of pointing out when those moments happen, explaining why they're not funny. There's a delicate balance of like who is doing the labor because you want to hear from the, the groups of people that they affect, but you don't want them to be the ones shouldering all of the work. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's important to sort of know who your, your allies are and know who your buddies are that can help you share this load. And I think that's a really important thing to be thinking about. Um, and then, especially in communities that have a large age span, where we have older people all the way down to like people in their teens, um, you get a lot of sort of crossing of values and of thoughts and, yes. um, you know, the way things are, the way things used to be. Right. And being really conscious of how those things are intersecting. And, you know, being aware of and trying to discern, like, when somebody 
when there's a teaching moment happening, if it's something that like someone just genuinely doesn't know better and like isn't sure what to ask or whether it's coming from someplace that's malicious or, and even if it's coming from a place of ignorance, like taking the opportunity to educate and make sure they understand like why what they said is not okay or why what they did or wore was not okay, you know? Right. So it's, I come at it from an education standpoint because that's all, that's what I know. I've been a teaching artist for 10 years and I just think that the more that we can keep people informed, then the easier our jobs individually become. And it's a it's a good way to make sure you're you're distributing the load and it's not too heavy on any one person or group. Let's talk about the age thing a little bit more. Can you give any specific ways or examples of how you see that manifest? And what is the best way as a younger person to explain to an older person how to respect, you know, say my trans friends? Um, so weirdly, a place that I see this come up a lot is I, I do a lot of fiber arts. I like knit and crochet and cross stitch. And mm-hmm. those are sort of traditionally thought of as like, quote unquote, old lady crafts. Yeah. And there's this huge resurgence with millennials of for really sure. embracing these forms of fiber art for their own self-expression. So in my cross stitching groups, we get this intersection a lot because we have these, for the most part, really lovely, like 80 year old literal grandmothers who are making stuff for their grandkids and they're all you know little cute puppies and butterflies and like all that fun stuff Mm -hmm. and then you have people like me who are making things that say like my favorite season is the fall of the patriarchy right (laughs) so it's it's a real intersection of those generations and you see the difference in the sort of social sensibilities really come through with the type of work that people present and share in the groups Mm -hmm. Um, I'm in one group in particular where there's a lot of conversation always about people who post like pro Southern civil war projects. Yeah. (laughs) Like things with the Confederate flag on them. And then you have everybody like me coming in and being like, if you want to make that for yourself in your own house, whatever you do you, but this is not an appropriate place to be sharing these ideas and to be sharing these preferences and to be saying the kinds of things like, you like miss the old days of the South. Like (laughs) those are the kind of comments that come in and it's inevitably greeted with, Oh, people are too sensitive. Oh, like if you don't like it, just keep scrolling like that sort of thing. And it's one of the group that this happens in the most does not have particularly strong moderators. Uh, So we don't really have the support that would be ideal to, to deal with these kind of situations, but really there's a lot of solidarity with a lot of the, not universally younger, but typically the younger members of the group. Um, Mm -hmm. And just speaking up and again, explaining like why it's not okay, or at least why it's not okay to like put out in a public forum where people can be affected by it. Yeah. Um, Explaining like what the Confederate flag symbolizes and like why that is not something you should be perpetuating and, you know, really trying to give some insight and some empathy trying Mm -hmm. to get them to understand from an empathetic point of view why it affects people. Yeah. And it's not, it's not always successful, you know, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. we can't, we have to like constantly keep trying. Otherwise it's never going to work. Yeah. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Um, So in your day to day as a DEI consultant, what does that look like? So I work in a couple of capacities. I'm still relatively new to it on the professional end um, because I just got my certification. Uh, But I work with a light opera company as the facilitator of their DEI committee. So I run 
we have meetings like twice a month, they're about two hours long, and I run the meetings and make sure that we stay on agenda and assign any sort of breakout tasks that we need um, and just sort of steer this body that is there to provide insight and perspective like from a DEI standpoint, because it's a company that has traditionally been very white Mm-hmm. And he's a little bit older and has recently had a sort of new wave of younger performers come into them and are being very mindful of the fact that the material that they do tends to lean towards white because right. of the nature of what it is. Um, and I'm lucky in that they are a really wonderful group of people who do genuinely want to learn and progress and recognize the importance of changing and evolving and so it was not uh, as much of a battle as I thought it might be going into it. Mm-hmm. But it's a company I care about a lot and that I really love working with. And I do want to see evolve and survive through all through everything that they've had to deal with this year. Um, and we have been pretty productive in the 10 or so months that this committee has been active. That's really awesome. Um, we're working on revamping the mission statement and values for the company mm-hmm. to reflect uh, an acknowledgement of the fact that, that we have not been racially equitable and the fact that it is something that they are striving for and is not currently occurring. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have, we're adding, uh, I think five to eight new members of the board and they've pledged to have at least three, if not all be people of color. That's awesome. An amazing thing to have. I mean, the, the fact that most of the things we have asked for, the answer has just been yes. Yeah. is really unprecedented. Yeah, no pushback or anything. <laughs> not not really. Like, some, you know, in, in the sort of nitty gritty of it, in the actual, you know, dealings that, that we are not necessarily a part of that go on with the board and the staff and, you know, all of, all of the bureaucracy involved with the company. Um, there is a little bit of struggle, but I think that is the true for any type of change. For sure especially in something that is very entrenched. Um, so that's the the sort of primary work that I'm doing right now is with this company. Um, and it's been really satisfying and we can see things happening, which is, you know, all the more motivating to keep going. And it's a really lovely and open-minded group of people who have, have really big aspirations for what we can be and can do. So that's really exciting. Definitely. Um, and then the other sort of thing that is just starting is my two colleagues that did uh, my certification course with me. We have started consulting as a group, the three of us, um, and we are offering virtual workshops on a variety of DEI subjects, whether it's something that an organization says they want more training in, they come to us and we can build it, or if it's something that we think is necessary and we're offering out, we've started doing virtual workshops. So we just did one on cultivating inclusive online spaces, since so much of our interaction is online right now. Yeah. Um, and again, focusing on sort of hobby organizations. That's so cool. Yeah. It's been really fun. We're, we're formalizing ourselves. We're in the process of formalizing ourselves right now. So it started as almost this whim because we all sort of knew we took the class together and like knew what we were talking about at that point. And that's so awesome. We'll even drop that, that link in the, in, in a section at the end of the episode where I'm going to ask you to plug all your stuff. I would love to. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, what was something you learned in DEI school, so to speak, that <laughs> like either like really blew your mind or really opened something up for you or like that you think more people should know? Um, 
it was kind of neat to know that a lot of the things I was already doing were the recommended ways of doing it. Yeah. <laughs> um, there was a lot of validation that came with like, oh, okay, I already operate this way. It's just called this. Like, I know what the name of it is now, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really exciting. And it told me that like my instincts were correct uh, and that I should keep moving in the direction that I was. Um, we learned some techniques for like helping people work through and process change because change is really scary. And a lot of the negative reaction to proposed changes that are, you know, potentially foundation shaking in, in these, someone's world, you know, for sure, um, can be really terrifying. And so we learned a lot of techniques for alleviating that fear from making sure that the person who's expressing that fear feels heard and validated and making sure that they don't feel like you're just sort of brushing off their concerns um, because that causes a lot of people to shut down if they don't feel like what they're, what they're saying is really being processed and absorbed. Um, And then hopefully through that, being able to bring them on board with whatever those changes are. So whether that's asking them like, when this happens, what will you need from us, you know, to, to continue working or to feel more comfortable or whatever that might be. Mm-hmm. Um, and getting them invested in the process of change and sort of showing them why you don't have to be afraid of it, that it's actually going to benefit everybody. And you don't need to be concerned for your personal well-being, which I think is the, the first thing that comes to people's minds. Oh, that's very interesting. Can you speak a bit more on that? Um, Yeah. So, you know, for example, we see a lot of statements of companies uh, saying that they are looking specifically to hire more BIPOC candidates Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, a lot of the conversation right now is centered on racial diversity and racial equity, which is incredibly important. And it's all related, right? Like all of these sort of marginalized groups conversations are all related to each other. Oh, yeah. Layers upon layers. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, people might see that you might have a white woman who's been at this company for 30 years and they see looking to hire more by POC women and they think, Oh, they're going to replace me. Right. You know, so their, their fear is that there is no room for them in this new structure, whatever that structure might be. Yeah. So being able to go to them and to really understand that they're not against the change itself, they're against how it might affect them. Yes. And saying, I understand your fear. That's not the goal of this. The goal is to increase representation in your colleagues, not to replace uh, the, you know, the people that are currently a valuable part of this and saying um, like, what would, what would you need if we added three more people to your team? Like, how would that help you? How do you think this might make things harder and having a real conversation with them and treating them like a human that has, you know, needs and emotions. Right. Two of the the sort of key words that they used uh, were equanimity and empathy. Uh-huh. So equanimity, making sure you're not being emotionally driven in your decisions and your discussions and empathy and really, you know, putting yourself in, in the other person's place and understanding where that fear reaction is coming from. I love that. That is so brilliant and helpful. 
And obviously there are exceptions to this rule. You know, a, there are a lot of theater companies who have entirely white boards who I would not be disappointed to see every one of them go. But, right. <laughs> you know, so it, you have to, there's a lot of individual factors for your situation and there's a lot of systemic factors that I, we would love to tackle in one fell swoop and can't right. be dealt with that way, you know. But I think for, for a starting point, it really helps to be able to think from that standpoint. Yeah. So how does size play into your DEI work? Um, it's not a diversity category that I feel I see acknowledged very often. Yeah. Um, and especially, again, on the sort of more corporate business side, I don't think it's one that is especially relevant oh, yeah. in terms of like being able to do whatever job. I do think that it is, there is an immense implicit bias, unconscious bias, you know, against yeah. fat people. Um, but we really see it in media and entertainment, both in the either lack of representation or lack of positive representation, rather, yeah. and in the perpetuation of stereotypes and tropes. So it it's more the fact of, since my plan is to focus on the arts, of just keeping in mind that that is a category that also should be included in this conversation. So... For, I mean, with my light opera company I work with, every time we talk about, you know, finding more by POC performers, I always make sure to say, and body diversity. Like, we're looking for racial and body diversity. Because I just don't think that it really, because it is less, I guess, fraught, like the history of it is less fraught. I think it's not seen as something that is urgent. And it's still very much should be part of that conversation and particularly with casting. Yeah. What are the responses like to you bringing up size diversity in these situations? Um, for the most part with my company, they're positive. Yeah. Um, because again, I'm lucky that everybody is really open-minded and gung-ho about this whole process. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot, it's a lot of um, excuses for why it hasn't happened already. Because yeah. pe- people people like want you to absolve them of their wrongdoing, so they try to justify it. So it seems like less of a transgression, and that that doesn't you know doesn't make it any better <laughs> just because you say you have a reason, and the reason is most often oh we can't find them, or oh they're not showing up. That's so interesting, and that's surprising and, to me. Well, yeah, and the re- I tell them they're not showing up because you've proven you won't give them work. Right. Like I'm I'm not going to waste my gas money, my time, my energy, my printer ink, you know, yeah. for, to go to an audition for a company who I know is not going to cast me in anything. Oh, 100%. So it's it's a cycle of broken trust. Yeah. Where you have proven time and again to this community and again, you know, this goes for BIPOC performers as well. For sure. You have proven to this community that you are not going to give them the opportunity. So why would they bother continuing to try to get that opportunity from you? Yeah. And it takes a long time to build that trust back up again and it breaks in an instant. That's definitely true. So it's a very long process that you have to be invested in that you have to find ways to demonstrably prove that this is a priority for you. You can't just say it. You can't just put out a statement on your Instagram that says you're going to hire more black sopranos this year like you have to do things in the way that you operate in your company's processes that show you are serious about reconnecting with this group yes so 
you work for a light opera company and you're a musical theater actor. Yes. How do attitudes toward body size differ in those worlds? I think that a lot of the classical disciplines are inherently more slow to change because so much is steeped in tradition. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the word classical sort of by its nature means how how it was done originally or how it was done, you know, back then. Right. (laughs) Um, And we see this in ballet, we see this in the opera world, you know, tradition is a very big part of how things are presented. So it's really difficult to break the mental cycle of the people that are in those positions of power to say, you know, you're, this this person doesn't have to look this way. Right. Right. And I I don't think there's any lack of talent by any means (laughs) in these different diverse, you know, body and racially diverse categories. But it's a matter of attempting to get these people to see that it does not have to be done in this way and that it can still do justice to the parts of the classical work that are important to them as creators and to us as audiences. I think that there's a little bit more open-mindedness in musical theater just because we're working with newer material. Right. And especially in the last, I'm going to say like five years or so, I think a lot more content has been created to feature different types of bodies and colors and uh, gender identities and, you know, all, all of these marginalized categories. And we've seen some really lovely stuff come out of it. It's not widespread yet. And the, the struggle is definitely still inherent and every day. Oh, yeah. But I do think that we see more of an opening in musical theater than we do in like opera or ballet. Yeah. It seems like things are changing for the positive. I think they are. And that was one of the things when I originally left to move to New York, I was really excited about. Yeah. Because it takes time for things that are happening in New York and on Broadway, since that's, you know, sort of the the origination point for a lot of this stuff. Right. um, To make its way out to the West Coast. Mm -hmm. And so I was excited to sort of be in the place that was already starting to think this way. And obviously it like did not play out in as uh, overt a way as I had hoped that it would being in there. There was still a lot of the old, you know, assumptions and biases at play, but that's also because Broadway is, you know, the theater system. It is the systemic issues that are in the industry really come from Broadway in a lot of ways. And if you look at the power structure of the Broadway industry, it is inherently white and male and they, you know, that, that plays into all of the representation of various groups of marginalized peoples. Yes. And something that I know there is a movement to change and I am really looking forward to see how all of that progresses. That's been one of the night, the strange, like nice things about the pandemic is that we've all gotten time as an industry to step back and really look at ourselves and, there's a whole a whole movement happening for the same sort of social justice reform that we're seeing on a countrywide and a governmental level. We're seeing it in, in small in the theater industry. Yeah. What are some things that organizations and or individuals can do to like speed this progress along, particularly regarding body diversity, but also for racial or disability or any other marginalized group? Yeah. Um, I'm going to give a shout out to a group that I just sort of recently found out about uh, and follow on Facebook, the uh, Broadway Body Positivity Project. 
Um, they're lovely and their whole goal is to get all types of bodies, all colors, all abilities, all genders to be represented on Broadway stages, which mm-hmm. I think is, you know, is a goal we could, we're all united in and that's really lovely. Um, so give them a follow if you are so inclined. They, they have some really great content that they put out. Um, I think as an individual, there's a lot of power right now in creating your own content. We all have like pretty high quality cameras in our phones now and <laughs> everything currently because of the pandemic is digital. So there's this wide open door for you to make the kind of stuff that you want to see and you can do it quickly and for little to no money by yourself in your bedroom, you know, over Zoom, however. And I think the more the more content that we can see put out, the more opportunity there is to show that there is an audience for it. Because that's one of the big fears, right, in in taking a chance on a type of certain type of casting is that right. there's, there's not an audience for it. So we can prove on an individual level by creating our own content that there really is and that there's no reason to not be making these casting choices. Yeah. As an organization, you can intentionally seek out the communities that you want to represent more. Mm-hmm. So find affinity groups, find affinity queen organizations. There are plenty of really amazing indigenous theater groups and you know black artist theater groups and Latinx Hispanic theater groups that you can go to to find performers of that group that you say are not showing up for you. And it's a little bit harder with I think body type because there's not necessarily a place that like fat performers congregate. Not yet. (laughs) Not not yet. We're going to start it. Let's do it. (laughs) Um, But so it has to, you know, happen a little bit more on an individual level. Right. Seeking out specific performers in your area, looking at their work, inviting them to come audition for you and ultimately casting them. I mean, I think that's what it all comes down to is you can do all of this legwork, but if you're not going to cast them in the end anyway, then there's no point in having done it in the first place. And you're coming off as disingenuous and, you know, making your statement and checking your box and and continuing to operate in the way you always have. Right. And that's what we're trying to avoid is that sort of lip service that we see in a lot of places all the time. So making those intentional efforts and then following through on them. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about fat representation as something that has been a factor in your life and what you've seen in the media, on TV, etc. What are some fat characters that were really foundational to you? We I know we talked about Peggy and Hamilton. That was awesome. Yeah, that was a really excellent moment. (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious to hear the positive and the negative, though. Um, So another big positive one was Bonnie Milligan in Head Over Heels. Mm-hmm. I moved to New York like right during, I think the last month that it was running on Broadway. Um, and that show in terms of representation overall was like two thumbs up. It was a super fun score. It's you know, the Go-Go's jukebox musical um, with a totally original like medieval sort of Renaissance fair like story, um, which was so much fun. And there I, I have like really never seen such a variety of people on stage in a production of of that level before. Yeah. It was so exciting. And Bonnie Milligan is insanely fabulous. If you don't know who she is, you need to uh, (laughs) look up all of her stuff. But she played the romantic lead. She was the princess of the realm. 
Um, and she fell in love with her handmaiden. And that was sort of the primary romance of the show. And Bonnie Milligan is plus sized and she was wearing these like beautiful gowns and she, she yes. was gorgeous. Like she was so, such a romantic sort of character. Yeah. And centering a queer relationship too. That's huge. It was so lovely. And like to see somebody that looked like her was just like, like playing that role, that very, you know, sort of idealized and romanticized role. I don't think we see that at all, really. Usually if we have a fat person in a relationship, they're like the comedy couple, you know, because it's right. always, because fat is funny. Ugh. Right. It's like, <laughs> LOL, look, they found someone as fat as them. And look, they both love food. So of course they're meant to be. Exactly. Totally. I just, so many things, so many images in my head now of that. But <laughs> Oh, yeah. But yeah, so that was really refreshing and really exciting like not to mention, I mean, you can never, you can never have the argument of, oh, we cast the most talented person ever again because she is the most talented. <laughs> <person>. <laughs> if you're not casting her, what are you doing? <laughs> Truly, though, like really. Yeah, it's <laughs> and, true. You know, there was all that. Like I said, that show was really lovely for all sorts of stuff. It was you know, there was uh, the main relationship was a queer relationship. They had uh, one of the characters who was a man and like dresses dressed up as a woman and realized that this was something that he was like more interested in exploring for himself in terms of his own gender identity I love his that. partner was like a hundred percent okay with it and was like encouraging of his journey and peppermint from rupaul's drag race who came out right. as trans on the show was the like goddess like like gave like all of these mystical power. Oh my God. She was so fabulous. <laughs> it was just a really like, I left that show being like, this is, this is what I want to see. Yeah. On Broadway stages. And I'm so sad that it didn't have a longer run and it didn't get enough love from the Tonys at all. <laughs> and I like, I, it's, it's the, the amateur licensing is available now. And I know that there have been productions happening kind of all over the, mm -hmm. the country now that it's available. And like, it's just, it's such a delight to see yeah and i want more of it amen um do you have any any negative ones that taught you oh. that being fat was bad i was like oh i forgot there's another i was all excited about the fun part <laughs> um i mean definitely there's the trope of like the villain yeah right or like the the bully you know the schoolyard yeah. bully, like some big old kid that can beat up on you know the, <laughs> the main character um, I, while I think she is fabulous now, like Ursula is the first one that came to mind because she, I mean, again, I think she's, I, I love her as an adult, <laughs> not necessarily her evil plan, but you know, like her confidence and her yeah. sap level and all of that. But as a kid, you know, she's just there to like ruin Ariel's life and it's really upsetting. <laughs> right. And no, seeing, seeing that, that like her size is a symbol of that villainy. Because they do oh, yeah. emphasize it in the movie, right? Yeah, it's like to scare you. You're supposed to be scared of her, of exactly. looking like her. Exactly. Literally fat phobia. Yeah, and then when she transforms into like into Vanessa to like steal the prince, she's this like oh, yeah. skinny, you know. And then the transition back when she turns back into the sea witch is like really jarring. Like she gets bigger. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So she's an interesting one. Because I think she's also coming from such a place of hurt. And like if you dig into her like backstory... Like, she has been marginalized. Totally. And she has all this anger that, like, 
honestly, a lot of the time fat characters don't really have. Like, I want, I kind of want more representations of fat anger. Yeah, of justified <laughs> fat <Right>. anger. <laughs> but, you know, as a kid, when you're, when you're consuming this, presumably for the first time, like, that's not a level you're operating on, right? You only see that surface presentation. And I think that that can be really detrimental. Definitely. I also want to talk about uh, fat representation in literature. Because you're a big, big romance novel person. I am. I've been <laughs> in a romance novel book club for going on eight years. Uh, wow. <laughs> it's like my fun fact that I throw on people and everyone's always mildly shocked. And I'm like, well, why? <laughs> Something has to be consistent in life. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, I know it's always going to end well. So there's no yeah. risk involved. And especially this year, like we all need that. Yeah. Um, so can you speak about any any representations in literature that were really like foundational to you? Um, yes. I mean, the first one that comes to mind is Hagrid and Harry Potter, because I, oh, yeah. while, while Harry Potter is its own conversation now, uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. I, that was, you know, a foundational part of my childhood. And Hagrid is literally giant. He's half giant. <laughs> but he's such a warm and kind and loving character and a really like foundational support for pretty much everybody in the story yeah like harry in particular because it's his story but i like i just want i wanted to know hagrid as a kid (laughs) and like he remembers harry's birthday and he like bought him his first pet and like he was just always there like literally for him to have a shoulder to cry on or to entertain him in class taking care of flower worms or like (laughs) he was one that i really really loved as a kid and then when the movies came out and he looked exactly like i thought he did which was they did such a good job with that he's wonderful and like yeah he was just one that i really was like i want to know him i want a hagrid yes (laughs) i love (laughs) that um obviously right now with with my romance novel, we love romance novels. Um, Bridgerton, mm-hmm. which just came out on Netflix, so everybody sort of knows it now. Right, uh, was the second series that I ever read when I started reading romance. Wow! Um, and Penelope Featherington, who is one of the best friends, and if you've only watched the show, her role is much bigger in the series overall. Mm-hmm. Um, but she is sort of a tertiary character, and she is described as being fat. And her mother sort of pushes her aside because she doesn't think she's marriageable and she focuses on her two older sisters and they make a point. The author, Julia Quinn makes a point of saying how poorly dressed Penelope is. Like her mom puts her in all these like really harsh, bright yellows and her clothes don't really fit her body type because she's dressing her like her skinnier daughters. Mm -hmm. And she has her own book in the series where she is the heroine and a big part of her story is the fact that she doesn't undergo some magical transformation and become skinny and therefore beautiful. Her body stays the same, but she, as she gets older, she has more power over how she dresses. She wears more flattering colors and more flattering fits and silhouettes, which like is huge, right? For anybody dressing your body in a way that is, you know, fitted and comfortable makes it more flattering. Mm-hmm. and the her her love story is really like a big part of this, the fact that she is beautiful and she is desirable to the hero of the book and it's not because her body changed 
Her yeah. body is the same as it was. And so rare in the literature I was reading growing up. Yeah, it really is. And particularly for a romance novel. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and romance itself as a genre has undergone a lot of changes in the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, but we like it's one of my favorite examples of it because she she really doesn't like they you know, they talk about how she like has sort of lost her like baby chub, but they like her body type pet does not change in her book. That's awesome. It's, it's really lovely. And then there's another just sneaking one more romance novel in there because it's my love. Um, Sarah, Go for it. Sarah McLean uh, is one of my favorite authors and she's a lovely person. I met her two summers ago. I was Ooh. so excited. Um, her book, Brazen and the Beast, Hattie, the heroine, is intentionally and vocally plus sized. And Sarah, I saw her talk about the book at uh, at a panel and she was just like, I don't understand why there's not more of this. Like, there's no yeah. reason that we shouldn't be telling these stories. She is just as hot. She's just as desirable. She just happens to be large. Right. There's so many books where they go out of their way to talk about how thin the heroine is. Yeah. So, like, almost all books. Like, it's it's staggering. And, like, I notice it. Yeah, because it's usually baked into the description, right? Like when you oh, first yeah. encounter this person, mm-hmm. they talk about how like slender they are. Oh yeah, they love. Or usually, <laughs> usually it's like they have a tiny waist, but like hips for bearing children. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> like everyone is Barbie proportions. That's definitely true in romance novels for sure. Yes, hundred yeah. <laughs> percent. It's like some of my favorite books too. I'm like, it hurts me to read this because like, uh, you know, when I was a kid and like reading all that stuff, it just. It just was like, you're not the main character. Like, that's the subtext I got from it. It's like, yeah. you are not the main character. Totally. I got that more from books than I did from TV because I was in a household that didn't let me watch TV. So maybe, well, maybe that's I not did, true for everyone. It is, more, it is more focused in books, though, right? Because mm-hmm. a lot of times, TV series, you're able to sort of focus on more than one storyline at a time. Right, right. The medium. So I do think it comes through in books a lot. Yeah. Plus, I always read first-person narrative books like I was really into that for some reason and so a lot of those books just were told from the perspectives of people who were thin and were you know the authors went out of their way to sneakily or not so sneakily talk about how conventionally attractive they were even if they didn't know it yeah though they never know it oh they never (laughs) never know know because they'd be despicable (laughs) (laughs) and then you know the, the the next step of this as we're getting more fat main characters who are worthy of love right. is seeing fat people as part of the world around them too. Yeah. So, you know, making sure that it's not just the main heroine, but it's also like the woman she walks past in the dress shop and like the, sure. the person that she sees at the tea shop or whatever, you know? Yep. Making I sure can see the, more the of that, world. I think. Yeah. That the world yeah. is also populated and they're not, only there to be villainized. I also like have started to notice, just notice it more in my life. Yeah, like, absolutely. I, I think it's also a product of like, I grew up in Vermont and like, it's very white and it's very, like there's big fitness culture there. Cause like everyone's very outdoorsy, including myself. But, um, you know, everybody in my high school, like ran marathons for fun. That sounds like my actual torture. And <laughs> there were not a lot of fat people around. And then I moved to the city and suddenly I saw I saw people who looked like me living their lives. And, you know, I mean, I was never not living my life. I also was like smaller then. But there is definitely something to be said for like the level to which media tells you and everyone 
that fat people do not exist in the world normally or yeah. at all in some ways. Yeah, like I'm all for, you know, having us be the heroine, but I also want to see the fact that we populate the world around them. Right. Like I went to school. I went to the bar with my friends. I went to the store. I went to the gym. Like I have a life, you know? Yeah. And and especially doing those kinds of activities that are traditionally not shown yeah. as being like fat person activities, like right. going to the gym. Yeah. And or going to the bar. Yeah. Like I mean, you don't I mean, you don't have to be having sex or going clubbing or dancing to go to the bar. But like, I, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like fat people aren't seen as having like normal social lives and being a normal part of the friend group. And like I was always a pretty normal part of the friend group until like we got flirted with and then I wilted into a corner. But that's another oh. story for another time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just I, I would love to see more and it's it's not quite the right word, but like casual representation. Yeah. Of where where it's just there. It's not a thing. It's not a plot point or a character trait. Like they it we're just there because that's how it is in the real world. Yeah. I like that we're making it a plot point more in terms of like this person's life is harder because of their size, but we need to envision a world where that is not the case. Yeah, we need both. They're both, we need I think, both. equally important. And I'm glad that we're starting to get one and it's hopefully opening the door to the other. Amen. So last thing, uh, this is a segment called Cast Me Cowards. And in this segment, you tell me one role that you want to play that you would not, quote, traditionally, end quote, be cast in. And then I make you self-tape it and we put it in on our social media. <laughs> oh, all right. <laughs> um, Probably. Okay, it's a tie. Can I cheat and say two? Oh, yeah. Anita from West Side Story. Oh, my God. I love that. I've always thought that she should be fat. West Side Story has been my favorite musical my whole life because it was the only one that I, as a Latinx woman, was like, hey, I could do that. Right. <laughs> uh, but, and because she is primarily a dance role. Yes. And I feel very capable of being able to do it. Like, that's definitely a huge one. And the other one is just like my childhood dream now that it is a musical, I can do it. A Princess Jasmine in Aladdin. Oh. <laughs> She's always been my favorite. I love <laughs> I've that. Seen the show like seven times. That's amazing. Yeah, it's th- those are definitely my top two, I think. I love that. All right. Uh, well, is there anything that you want to plug, leave us with, social media? Uh, if we wanted to like hire you as a consultant, could we do that? You absolutely could. Um, our, our little consulting group is, as I said, still sort of in the process of formalizing ourselves. But you can totally find me on Instagram. Um, Kristen, my name, underscore A, underscore acting, <laughs> my my Insta handle. Uh, and you can always DM me through there. Um, my Facebook page is the same name, Kristen Avila Acting. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, either, either of those are great for getting in touch with me. Um, and I'm always happy to answer any questions or give any advice I might be able to, you know, help you with. Um, like I said, I've been in education for a long time, so I'm always here to to help uh, provide any guidance that I I can for anybody that needs it, especially for younger or emerging artists. I just think it's really important to, to be oh, able. I love that. Me too. Yeah. I love What a great way to end. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. I feel like I learned a lot and I hope that whoever's listening did too. All the best of luck in your consulting biz and the rest of life. 
Thank you, Abby. This is awesome. I am so glad that you're doing this. And I am really looking forward to listening to all the other episodes. Yay. All right. Bye. (laughs) Bye. Thank you so much for listening to More Than Tracy Turnblad. If you liked it, please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. That is how we tell the algorithm that we are a podcast worth listening to. And by we, I mean me and all of my wonderful guests. Also, follow on social media at More Than Tracy T on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And my personal social media, if you want to follow me, is Abby Rose Morris on TikTok and Instagram, and Abby Rose Morris underscore on Twitter. Bye.